Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, joins us on the program as he shares his insights on the global markets and what key themes to watch for in 2023. Yurian discusses many topics with host Pamela Ritchie, including the continuing inflation story, where he sees the bond market going, the theme of value versus growth, and where China stands in the overall economic picture. In terms of a possible recession this year, Yurian states that until the consumer stops spending or loses their job, we're probably not going to be in a recession. His sense is that if it does happen, a recession will come in the second half of the year. He adds it's important for investors to know the market anticipates and prices in expectations for the future, which means the market often bottoms several quarters ahead of an earnings trough. Stay tuned for this and more. Also per usual, Yurian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on January 3rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I don't think, Urian, we have spoken since, in fact, the FOMC had its December um, decision. Should we should we sort of start there looking looking back a bit first? Absolutely. So let's go to slide 10. And slide 10 he's referring to is the Fed and the market that was tweeted on December 21st, 2022. Please note today's podcast was recorded on January 3rd, 2023. However, several of the charts and slides Urian is referring to were tweeted in December of 2022. So yes, we haven't spoken in a few weeks and the Fed did meet in December. And as you know, we had kind of expected, uh, Jay Powell kept a fairly hawkish line. I think he's trying to walk back the market's constant belief um, that the Fed is going to get to you know the promised land of a restrictive policy rate, uh, restrictive enough to um, to tame inflation, and then immediately uh, revert back to something uh, reflecting a more neutral rate. Um, and so <clears throat> the market has been perhaps overly optimistic that the Fed is going to do that very, very quickly. Um, and, um, and Jay Powell, I think, went through some, some lengths to say, you know, uh, it's not just inflation. It's not just that we need inflation to come down. We need it to come down to 2%. Uh, and that's still a pretty long way, even though the CPI data recently, you know, have been, have been good. Like they've, they've been coming in under expectations, but, uh, but the Fed, you know, uh, doesn't want the, <clears throat> the animal spirits to, to get, you know, loose too quickly because then what will happen is financial conditions will start to ease and then the markets rally, people keep spending money and then the risk is that inflation ends up, you know, being st- falling, but being stickier than expected. And so, you know, this uh, chart here is the, the latest one. 
so this is, um, you see the dots here incorporating that last FOMC meeting from a few weeks ago. And you can see that the market is still fighting the Fed, basically. You know, <clears throat> don't fight the Fed is a very old mantra in the markets, and it's usually a good one. But what you can see here is that the dot plot <clears throat> suggests that the Fed is going to go to about 5% this year in the first half of this year. Um, and so the market's on board with that. That's that's in the data. Uh, <clears throat> but then the market expects the Fed to pivot fairly rapidly and go all the way down to 3% by the end of next year. Um, and the dot plot, you see the 2024 dots there, suggests that the Fed is still going to be somewhere north of 4% by the end of, of next year. And again, that's you know a year plus out, so who knows what's going to happen. The, the, obviously, both the dot plot and the forward curve are, are changing on a regular basis, the, cur the curve you know, uh, constantly, of course. But it shows that there is still a disconnect between what the Fed is going through great lengths at saying, meaning uh, you know, we, we may not go much higher than the market expects, but we're not going to come down nearly as quickly, um, and, um, and the market continues to fight that. So I think that will be one of the battle lines for 2023. And you, know, you might wonder why does this even matter, but it does matter because when you look at valuation, and we can pull up slide six. And that slide equity valuation was tweeted by Urian on December 21st. You know, we've talked about this uh, a lot last year, and, and my models of the, you know, the two-year yield, the 10-year real yield, the discounted cash flow model, they've been very good um, tools to have handy in terms of explaining you know, why the market was going down. It was all valuation-driven. And you see here in the gray line is the actual forward PE, and the other three lines are the various different models. And so the reason why this Fed chart is important is because the market is trading north of where the where interest rates suggest they should be trading. Um, and the reason it's trading north, in my view, is that the market is looking past this kind of peak Fed moment of 5% in the next you know, three to six months um, and on to a more neutral policy of around 3%. And I think you know that's on its own is is a reasonable assumption because neutral is neutral for a reason. I mean, at some point the the, the cycle will turn, uh, but maybe the market is sort of betting on this happening a little bit too soon. And if we do get you know a pivot in the Fed at some point next year, or, or I should say this year, 2023, uh, we have to worry about why the Fed is pivoting. Right? It could be a benign pivot, like we saw with green, the Greenspan Fed in 1994 and 5, where, where Greenspan gave back some of the rate hikes because uh, he, he basically uh, claimed victory over inflation, which, which was correct. Uh, but the Fed could also be pivoting because we're in a recession. Uh, and if we get into a recession, uh, which, if it happens, I suspect would be the second half of this year. Uh, in a recession, of course, the Fed will be pivoting, but that would be a, a bad pivot, not not a good pivot. Because if we get a recession, and you know, again, we can look at the the yield curve as a leading indicator. That's slide three. The yield curve slide he's referring to was tweeted on December twentieth. You wonder what's going to happen to earnings in that environment, right? And the yield okay, curve, yeah. uh, it, it's been steepening in the last week or so. But uh, before that moment, you know, we, we are in the most inverted yield curve, uh, uh, you know, regime since the early 1980s. So, uh, you know, um, uh, ex you, you can you can dismiss the, the, the signal of the yield curve at your own 
peril, peril. Uh, okay. and it is a notoriously, you know, bad, uh, it's not bad, but it's a notoriously tricky indicator because the lead times can be very variable and it doesn't tell you how severe or or, or mild a recession will be, but this is a pretty big signal and, and it's something that we need to think about. So maybe the market is right in expecting the Fed to pivot, but it would be a pivot under the, under uh, not the best circumstances because then we have to worry about earnings. Right. Okay. Well, and, and that's that's what we want to ask you about. So there's much discussion towards the end of last year. Will we ultimately see sort of another shoe drop on, on the earnings front? And uh, I mean, where are we now? We're going to get Q4 numbers in on, on sort of the retail side of things, on consumption. Some of those numbers come through very, very quickly. Uh, what do you see? How do you set us up for earnings for the final quarter of last year? Certainly on the on the manufacturing side, right, when you look at the PMIs, the purchasing managers indices, uh, they are weak. They are below 50. And so you could argue that on the goods producing side of the economy, we might already be uh, in a contraction mode. But that's only maybe a tenth of the economy, right? So uh, un until the consumer stops spending or loses his or her job, um, you know, we're probably not going to be in a recession. So my sense is, given the lead and lag times of the yield curve and given what we're seeing in the economy, uh, that uh, maybe the second half of the year would be the time to be thinking about a recession, uh, but but not like right now, uh, not not imminently. But there certainly are some some storm clouds. I mean, the yield curve is one. You look at the housing market, that's that's a, a hot mess as well. Um, the the um, home sales is now below uh, the, the trough during the pandemic, you know, two and a half years ago. So the housing market, because rates have risen so 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 rapidly, the housing market is completely frozen here in the U.S. I don't know if in Canada it's it's any different, but here basically nothing is moving because nobody wants to give up their three percent mortgage unless they have to. So uh, people are not really buying or, or selling property, and and you know housing is an important part of uh, of the economy. So, but my sense is that if a recession comes, it'll be uh, the second half of the year. And then we need to think about, you know, what does that do to the stock market? Because obviously a recession would imply negative earnings, which, of course, are generally a negative thing for the stock market because price follows earnings. But it's never that simple, of course, because the market also anticipates and prices in uh, expectations for the future, which means that the market often bottoms several quarters ahead of an earnings trough which, of course, is exactly what happened in 2020 during the, the pandemic lockdown. And you and I had this conversation constantly back then saying, how can the market rally when the world is still ending? And the answer was uh, that the market, the market, the market prices in the future. So then you get into the timing game of, OK, if the recession doesn't start till the second half, and um, and earn and then you have a full recession cycle. Maybe earnings are then falling all the way into early 2024 or something like that. The low was October, which was already you know two three months ago. Um, and normally the lead is about six months of price versus earnings. And you get into timing mismatches of how can the market already now be bottoming if the earnings drop doesn't happen for another year. And so that's. I think that's going to be one of the kind of the, the back and forth of the market in 2023. Okay, so that because that's fascinating. There's a ton of questions coming in, but I actually just wanted to get to because I've seen some of your recent slides and you, you do go into sort of dissecting 
you know, other other recessionary environment, really, really more the bear market story. But I mean, yeah. how are we sort of comparable to, to some of those? Let's let's pull up some of those slides, if you don't mind. And then I really have to get to these questions. There's so many of them. So let's start with slide 12. And, and so let's just kind of lay the groundwork here. And that slide Urian is speaking of, bear markets, was tweeted on December 19th. Uh, so slide 12 shows all all bear markets going back 150 years. And, you know, as of this bear market, which we don't know if it's over or not, it, it might be, but it might not be. Uh, we're down 28% from the high to the low, which was in October. Um, the average bear market is 33%. So we're pretty close to an average. And But of course, the caveat is that there's no such thing as an average bear market. The average is just an average of either very benign or very bad bear markets. And so for me, what this all comes down to, whether uh, in terms of answering the question of whether this will remain an average bear market or will become something worse, it's all going to come down to earnings because we know that the valuation side has already reset. You can see that in this table that the P.E. has fallen 32 percent from high to low. That's a that's a that's a very significant PED rating, uh, but that earnings are up seven percent over the last uh, you know year, um, and so this has all been about valuation. So the question comes down to: Will the earnings shoe be the next one to drop? And if we go to the next slide, and the next slide, valuation versus earnings was tweeted on December twentieth. You can see that that juxtaposition of earnings growth and valuation changes. And as you can see in this chart, so the orange shows the year-over-year change in earnings, the purple year-over-year change in valuation. <clears throat> and oftentimes, when one is zigging, the other one is zagging. Uh, sometimes they're both zigging, sometimes they're both zagging. And when both the PE and the E are going up, you have very robust bull markets. But when both are going down, you have very significant bear markets. And as you can see right now during this cycle, <clears throat> one has basically offset the other. So when we take a step back from this and look at uh, you know, multiple decades of history, look at bear markets where both the E and the PE were falling, that's when you get the really bad outcomes. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, 2008, you, know, you see you had this whole other very painful down leg uh, from the fall of 08 into the spring of 09. And that was a period where both earnings were falling and the PE was contracting. And that is the hallmark of a really, really significant bear market. And that's not a prediction that that's what we're going to have this time. But when we think about what might take this current bear market and either end it, right, maybe the lows are in, who knows, or what would take this bear market and turn it into an even worse bear market, and it would have to be that that juxtaposition of earnings falling while the PE was still contracting. And I'll give you one more example, which actually is kind of a scary example, which is the dot-com bubble um, cycle. Again, exactly the same indicators, but now I show current versus the 2000-2002, is again, you know, the earnings cycle was actually positive during the first half of the bear market, and it was all valuation, just like it's been this time. But then the earnings shoe dropped while the valuation story was not over. And of course, we had a very big valuation overhang because of the tech bubble. And you had this whole other wave of the PE falling while the earnings cycle also contracted. And again, that's not a prediction for what's going to happen this year, but we need to ask the question of what could turn 2023 into 
you know, a, 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 a second phase of the bear market of 2022. And to me, it, it would have to be that scenario because the valuation side has already reset and it would have to be a recession causing earnings to decline. Um, and while, and the Fed may be staying, you know, more restrictive than we would like or something like that. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think those, all, all of those slides really sort of paint that picture. Okay. A couple of questions, uh, going in. Let, let's go to the first one. This is a leading question in the way it's written. So I'll just tell you that. Why can bonds do well during stagflationary periods? I guess it depends on whether you agree this is stagflationary. I wouldn't call it a stagflationary period, but in a way, uh, and, and the reason for that is when we think about stagflation, I think most people will think about the 1970s, where you just had this prolonged period of very, very high inflation and very uh, sluggish growth or no growth at all. And, and, you know, who knows? Maybe that's what we'll get. But basically every, every late cycle regime, right? So the business cycle is about four or five years long. You got the down cycle, the early cycle, the mid cycle, and the late cycle. And almost by definition, every late cycle, which is where we have been over the past year, is a stagflationary cycle, right? Growth is slowing, but not contracting, because that would be a recession. Um, but inflation is sticky. That's what forces the Fed's hand into tightening, which is a hallmark of late cycle. So in that sense, we are in stagflation, but we're in stagflation very often because that's kind of a part of the cycle. And so the reason bonds can do well in that, in that kind of shorter term stagflation cycles, because what typically happens next is a recession, not always, but typically. And then, of course, the inflation goes away because the Fed has killed it or the economic cycle has killed it, I should say. And then bonds do very well. And I think that's starting to happen now. And the inflation data are coming off, right? We were at 9% CPI back in June and we're, we're you know, lower than that. We're still very high, near 7%. But almost everyone I, I follow in terms of economic data uh, sees the inflation rate going at least to four um, at the end by the end of this year. And again, that's still four. That's not two. It's still above the Fed's target. But that's a pretty good improvement. And so, the, so I think for now the, the bond market is is sort of playing the card, saying the economy is is slowing. It might go into recession, um, and that's going to bring inflation down. And I think that's why the bond market has done well. I think the question, though, uh, about what what the viewer is asking will come during the next cycle. It, it will be more relevant for the next cycle, which is that let's say we get a recession in 2023, and let's say inflation goes to 4%, but no lower because of structural imbalances in the labor market, et cetera. Let's say we then get the next expansion after that, and your baseline for inflation is not zero or one, but it's four. Right. You know, and then you get an up cycle. Then, then you really are, you know, then you get into that kind of trouble spot. That wouldn't be stagflation because you would have growth, but you would have inflation bottoming off of a much higher level than the Fed would be comfortable with. And so I think that's a question not for today or tomorrow, but that's a question for down the road when we start getting past this current cycle. Okay, so I think that answers, you know, the discussion of a, of a 2%, if there's no wiggle room on that, that's a discussion perhaps or down the cycle. I want to get to this one because I, there's so many different questions to ask you about on China, but this, this is a good one because it encapsulates sort of a lot of it. So the investor is asking, is China a wild card? I, I think it is. I mean, so 
you can paint a very constructive picture right now because China is reopening, you know, come yeah. hell or high water. Um, yeah. And so that's that's the first sign that that's happened since COVID. I mean, China is the only country basically that hasn't been, uh, reopened. And so that should be an economic tailwind, right? It means more investment activity, more construction and things. And, and the Chinese government is already stimulating the economy with infrastructure so that's good for natural resources. And revenge for, travel as well. And re, yes, and revenge travel. Um, so that's that's the, the, the good part, right? China opening um, and China, you know, with over a billion people all of a sudden starting to spend money. And you think of the pent up demand we've had here, that's going to be happening there as well. So that so that makes me be more bullish on the economic cycle, certainly on investing in emerging markets um, and, you know, let's say luxury goods, things like, you know, those kinds of sectors. But as we all know, um, China is, in terms of the pandemic, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a price to pay for that, right? So my understanding, and I'm, I'm not a, a medical expert, obviously, but my understanding is that the Chinese population is under-vaccinated, under-boosted, and the vaccine that they do have is not the best vaccine. Vaccine. It's not. An, it's not an, R, an mRNA vaccine. Um, and so there's going to be a price to pay, and that is going to be mass infections. And and I think that's already happening. The Chinese government is not really reporting the data so much. So you could have mass casualties, mass infections. You could see the hospital system be be overwhelmed. All of those things, and we're not going to really hear about them if it happens. But you also think about all those people revenge traveling with COVID. What is that going to do to the rest of the world, right? And already the U.S. has imposed um, a, va a vaccination requirement for China, flights coming out of China. I don't know if Canada is doing the same, but I suspect everyone will be doing that. But still, it's easy to slip through the cracks and people go to different countries via other countries. And so it might actually create another COVID wave, which is, I think we can both agree that that's the last thing anybody wants to see because we are so done with COVID, right? And so, so it's not, it's not a slam dunk saying China reopens, great for the world economy. Therefore, you know, the markets go up. So it, it is a wild card in that sense. So, um, a couple of questions here. Um, is energy going to be a good place to be in 2023? I mean, we're sitting around $80 by and large, goes back and forth a bit. But um, taking a look at the oil energy, it did so well, obviously, in the past yeah. several months. I think energy continues uh, to look attractive, uh, as, are, as do financials. So value over growth, I think, remains my theme. Um, and actually, if you look at, um, a little bit off topic, but if we go to slide nine, that slide is meme stocks, tweeted on December 23rd. You can see that the speculative growth side of the market is actually already at the lows, at back at the October lows, even though the S&P is well above it. So it just illustrates that value is uh, where it's at. And the two main value sectors, of course, are energy and financials, you know, industrials as well. Uh, but in terms of energy, I think, you know, what's clear is that there's not going to be enough supply. Um, and um, and certainly companies have been sort of conditioned to not overinvest because, you know, uh, energy companies, um, capital discipline, let's put it that way, has not always been um, the greatest in the past. So I think there will be continue to be supply demand constraints in the energy market. And, and, uh, and of course, energy stocks, which, you know, have 
a weird valuation uh, system because it's highly cyclical. Uh, they're, they're very, very inexpensive because you know nobody pays for those earnings too far out like they would for, do for a growth stock. And so uh, it's it's a cheap sector. It's going to be a supply constrained sector. So I think energy will continue to be a secular outperformer, as as will commodities in general. Okay, I think we can fit this one in for sure. So what impact you're in? Um, do central bank cryptocurrencies uh, have on the economic system? Do you think um, they've all been working on them for years? Yeah, well, I'm going to need about three hours to explain that one. But uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. CBDCs, you know, I think um, I think it's going to be a while before we get them, other than in China, where of course they, it already exists. But I I think the Fed, especially now that the, the froth is out of the the, the whole crypto system, um, I think there's less of a of an urgency to roll out a CBDC by like like a Fed coin, for instance, in order to compete with a Chinese CBDC. Um, and in the meantime, stable coins, I think, are a pretty good proxy, right? I mean, essentially, stable coins are digital dollars. And um, and so I think the, the low-hanging fruit here, and, and I've said this already in the past and it hasn't happened, but, you know, re- regulation in the stable coin market is pretty low-hanging fruit here in the U.S. And of course, with the whole debacle with with FTX, certainly regulation in the entire crypto market, uh, I think, is coming. It should be coming. I mean, it, it should have happened, you know, a long time ago. Uh, but there's infighting. There's turf wars in Congress about who gets to regulate what. So I, my sense is this: if you have a a functioning uh, um, stablecoin system that you don't really need a CBDC because as long as the stable coins are regulated and we know that they're backed, for instance, by actual assets, then that's going to be probably good enough for the Fed because the Fed otherwise, the Fed has to get into the, the KYC business, the know your customer business, that gets you into privacy concerns. And it, it's like a big can of worms that I, if I were at the Fed, I'm like, you know what? I don't really feel like waiting in here, right? Uh, and then you get into being accused of manipulating behavior like the Chinese are getting accused of with their CBDC, like do things the way we want or or we're going to make your money either disappear or, or you'll be an albatross around your neck. So I think the Fed would probably be pretty uh, comfortable with a well-regulated, liquid, sound, uh, stable coin system, uh, and maybe that will be the, the hybrid until we eventually do get a CBDC. But, you know, the Fed is part of the government, and they don't do anything quickly. Um, so they are studying CBDCs. That is happening. But that's not something that takes three months. That takes, yeah. you know, multiple years. Well, thank you for condensing it into that very digestible bite. Um, maybe just a final word on the dollar directionally. It's It's been all over the place, actually, in the last several days. But um, really, ultimately, the EM question mark, wh- where the dollar goes in the EM. So EM, um, it was probably my worst call last year, being bullish on EM on the, on the basis of mean reversion after many years of U.S. hegemony. Uh, but it's still my call for 2023, and and part of it is is an earnings call, right? The difference between Chinese earnings or EM earnings and U.S. earnings has never been greater. Um, so things are so bad that they're good from a contrarian point of view. Uh, you have the dollar now weakening because the Fed is getting closer to the to the end line. 
Um, <clears throat> and you have China reopening, even if it comes at a human cost. Um, and so you add all of that up and you have this multi-year dominance of U.S. stocks over non-U.S. stocks, especially EM stocks. And to me, you know, it's, it's, it all adds up to an opportunity for, for mean reversion happening this year, even though it was supposed to happen last year. And EM in Europe, for instance, or IFA are trading at an, an 11 multiple. The U.S. is at a 17 multiple. We have to be uh, aware of value traps because um, a lot of people justify an exposure in other markets on the basis of valuation differentials. But ultimately, uh, relative performance between regions and <clears throat> countries is the result of relative earnings. And uh, relative earnings is expressed in dollars because when you look at IFA or EM, you consolidate those earnings into dollars. And so the dollar outlook actually becomes a very big part of that. And if the dollar has peaked, which it looks like it has, then just from the currency translation into earnings and relative performance, I think there's there's a very strong case to be made this year. So interesting. Okay, well, we'll we'll look forward to looking at that throughout the year with you ahead. Yuri and Timur, thank you very much for starting us off properly. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.